Welcome back to Bible Time. The purpose of discipleship is the title of this lesson as we wrap up 1 Thessalonians 3 with verse 13. To the end, he may establish, I said that wrong, not establish, but establish without the E. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Father, in Jesus' name, please anoint your word. Lord, Please help it to accomplish that which you've sent it to do. Don't just help it, Lord. Cause it to. Lord, our eyes are on you. Our hope is in you. We ask you, Lord, to fill us, to fit us, to use us. Father, in Jesus' name, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Open these words, Lord, to our understanding. Open our understanding to these words and help us to learn of you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says the the desire accomplished is sweet to the soul. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, at the end of the chapter, Paul says, to the end. Look at it. To the end, he says. To the end. There's a purpose. There's a cause. There's a cause for discipleship. We're looking at the purpose for discipleship. What is the end of that discipleship? What is the purpose, the goal that God wants to produce um, through discipleship? What is it that he is doing? That old saying, the end justifies the means. Think about that. The means being how you accomplish the goal, which is the end. The end justifies the means. Is that true? Does the end justify the means? If the bowl of ice cream is really yummy, does that justify you stealing the ice cream as your means to get it? What if you have no money? Can you take a bike and just go take the ice cream? Is it yours to take? No, it has to be purchased, doesn't it? What would be a godly means to get the ice cream? What would... What would it be? What if you didn't have the money? What would be a godly means to get the money? money. Work. To work hard, earn the money, put it in your pocket, and then go and buy the ice cream. That would be godly means. But there's a saying, as I told you, that went around, the end justifies the means. If your cause is good, then you have the right to do something bad to get the right results. Is that true? No. So the end, the purpose, that's what we're trying to discuss here. Does the end justify the means? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does that justify the means? Was his love, listen to me, pay attention. I want you to think a little deeper than surface right now. Does God's love for you His purpose of redeeming you to himself is that purpose enough to justify him sending his son? Here's the real question. Can the end ever justify the means? That's the real question. Do you see how easy our minds get switched into thinking along the wrong lines? All of a sudden, here we all were in the room, and I even was starting to think think it through myself too, and I'm the one that asked the question. And here we all are in the room thinking, does God's love for us justify what he did? That has nothing to do with it. Because his love for us isn't what justifies us, and it's not what justifies Christ. And if Christ did not do what was holy and just and pure, then it doesn't matter what reason he did it for. Do you hear me today? 
It doesn't matter if his end and his purpose of loving us was enough to justify the means or not. What matters is, were the means appropriate to secure it? Were the means holy that God used? Were the means right? Were the means just? And the answer to that question is indisputably yes. Whenever you study the atoning work of Jesus Christ, you find that his atoning work was perfectly suited to the end that he sent Christ to accomplish. That Jesus Christ died on the cross to save us from our sins and that it wasn't some kind of loosey-goosey emotional love that was just spur of the moment. This seems like a good idea. I think this will work. I hope it works out for good. I love them enough that I'm sure it's going to pan out because my love justifies what I'm doing. Instead, we find that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross was a purposeful, thoughtful, just and holy propitiation for our sins before Almighty God and that it holds so much legal weight that in the courtroom of heaven those who are justified by the blood of Jesus Christ can never be separated from the Father. Did you get that today? Jesus' love did not justify his death on the cross for our sins. His death on the cross justified us. And he did it because he loved us, but that didn't justify it. The end never justifies the means. The means must be linked with the end. Matthew 5.48 says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The end must be God's end. The purpose must be God's purpose. The goal must be God's goal. And the means to accomplish the end, the, the, um, the methods... The ways that we do what we do, the means must be God's means. God who has ordained the end has ordained the means. Think about it. God has ordained the goal. Do you remember he said, I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should bring forth much fruit. Well, the same God that said he's chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit, that's your end, that's your purpose, that's your goal, that's what you're striving towards and striving for and God who has ordained that end has ordained the means to that end he has ordained the life-giving flow of his power through you he has ordained the life-giving word of God to change you and alter you he has ordained the people in your life to teach you the God that has ordained the end has ordained the means. And here is that end. To the end, to the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And as we study this today, the purpose of discipleship, we're going to find that God has not only made that the purpose, but he has made the means. And that through his means, his purpose will be accomplished. Praise his holy name. And then all the glory goes to God and not to man. 
the end. What is the end? Here in your Bible verse, what is this saying? It's moving from an adjective to a noun. You're used to using the end of a goal, the end of a job, the end of a story, where the end is describing the noun, or at least the subject, even if it's another noun. It's not the main subject. The end is usually, there's a bigger subject. And if you say it's the end, everybody says the end of what? But here, sometimes the end is the thing. The end is the actual thing to be grasped. The end is something to be held. The end is, is the bowl of ice cream that you went on the bike to get. The end is the object that you are trying to grasp. Here he's saying to the end in this text. And that is saying to the object, to grasp the actual object, to lay hold of this worthy goal. The end is actually the goal. So he says, to the end, he may establish your hearts. Here's the goal that God is doing. Here is the purpose that he is that he has ordained discipleship. Now we looked at these different aspects of discipleship that were brought forth in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, starting back there in verse 10, I believe it was, the need for discipleship. And then we saw that there would be the providence of discipleship in verse 11. In verse 10, he says, night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. And we talked about the marvel that this church that was an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia would be so lacking in faith, though they had such great faith. And what a marvel that is. And that the apostle Paul said that he wanted to perfect that which was lacking in the faith of this ensample church, of this on fire church. And so so there we studied the need for discipleship. And then we looked at the produce of discipleship, what it actually produces, what comes out of it, the fruit that comes out of true biblical discipleship in verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do. And we observed there that that increasing and abounding in love, first toward the brethren, second toward the lost, and then thirdly, in the same manner that the Apostle Paul and his evangelistic band had loved the church, that the true produce, the fruit, what comes out of discipleship is reproduction, that what comes out of biblical discipleship is biblical ministry. What come, And by the way, what comes out of satanic discipleship is satanic ministry. The fruit of discipleship is reproduction, increasing and abounding in love towards the brethren, increasing and abounding in love towards the lost, and then a similarity of mode, a similarity of operation, a similarity of ministry, a similarity of outworking to those that have done the discipling. That there would be a, a recognizable similarity between the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the evangelistic outreaches of the church at Thessalonica because they were discipled by the Apostle Paul. And he says, I want you to increase and abound. I want you to go above and beyond where you are. I want that fruit to abound to your account. And But what is the purpose of that? What is the goal? You see, we would normally, as human beings, we would all think that the purpose would be the fruit, wouldn't we? What's the purpose of a banana tree? 
the bananas. And if you're not getting bananas, you're pretty upset with your banana tree. And so we would think with our human minds that the purpose of discipleship would be the fruit. But that's not what we find here in this passage. We find that that, that that fruit that Paul is asking God to make them to increase in, the fruit of love that would abound one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, that that fruit and that duplication of ministry is not actually the goal. It's actually the means to the goal. One of the means to the goal. That God's purpose in you bearing fruit is not because he's hungry for bananas. God's purpose in you bearing fruit is not because he can't go and get fruit himself. Who won the, the apostle Paul to the Lord on the road to Damascus? Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't out there begging us to go into the harvest fields because he can't do it himself. He's very well able to. He's the master. We are the servants. He said it is enough for the servant that he be as his master. He said, as, he says, as I have loved you, so you love one another. He said, do as I have done. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. Jesus Christ showed us how to do it. Jesus Christ proved that he can do it. Jesus Christ is the greatest example. He's not asking you to have fruit for his sake. It's for your sake. Let me ask you a question. Maybe this will help you get interested. What would you do if you were walking down the road in the middle of the night and you were grabbed by six men and they threw you in the ditch and they jumped on top of you and they grabbed bottles of strong alcoholic wine and shoved it in your mouth and hit you in the stomach until you swallowed and bottle after bottle until you threw up and they did it again until you threw up and they did it again until you threw up and then they left walking away laughing while you lay there so drunk you couldn't even you couldn't even talk or walk. What would you do? What would you do the next day? What would you do the week after? What would happen to you? What would happen to your faith? I just told you a story that really happened. And the man that it happened to was a South African that lived in the vineyards of South Africa, where the rich vineyard owners will pay their workers in alcoholic wine. And many of those men will work and not even make any money. And their wives and children, at least at the time that the story is from, from that era, many of their wives and children would, children would beg and forage to have enough food to just try and survive while their husband worked all day to bring home liquor and get drunk. One of those men got saved. He'd spent his whole life up to that point chasing liquor. He'd been an alcoholic, as they call it. The Bible calls it a drunkard. He had been a drunkard since he was a little boy. He'd been a drunkard for years and years and years. And he got saved, gloriously saved at the old church house. He trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. He was born again by the power of God and it was evidenced by the power of God in his life. God immediately delivered him from alcohol. Took it from him. <clears throat> he didn't want it anymore. His co-workers, his old buddies, they were mad. They'd lost their drinking buddy and that condemned them and made them feel wicked and made them feel dirty I have to wonder if that plantation job boss was mad because he lost one of his cheapest workers 
Because all that man worked for was liquor. And he didn't even have to pay him. And now if the man came to work, he wanted a paycheck. So his old buddies got together and they got a plan one day and they did that to him. That man did not recover. He did not recover. I cannot remember exactly how the end of his story, how his story ended, but it ended really bad. It ended with him dead. He never recovered from that. That's an awful story, isn't it? And then here's where all the high and mighty say he was never really saved. And that's where we need to humble ourselves and say, but by the grace of God, there go I. That's hard. Okay? Now look at your verse, and let's look at why God says you need discipleship. It's not for fruit. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of discipleship is to establish your hearts. To establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. One man would say, well, that man wasn't really saved because he really wanted that liquor all along. He really was just faking it. And then whenever they gave him the liquor, it gave him the excuse he needed to get back into his liquor. And he went running back to his liquor, so he wasn't even really saved. And the next person would say, oh, well, he lost his salvation. He was really saved, but he lost his salvation. And to you, I ask you to prove to me how you haven't lost your salvation. And we'll move on from there, because you should have lost yours a thousand times. Maybe millions. But in any case, the next person would say that that man, whenever that happened to him, and this might be, this might actually be what happened, but I don't know what happened. But here, let me just put something forth to you. Maybe what happened was that man as a babe in Christ, a young Christian just starting in his journey of faith, he had faith to take a stand and he had faith to suffer for Christ, but he was not established in his faith. And he got blown out of the water. Now, think about that story for a second. He wasn't established in his faith. Think about what might have gone through his mind when he finally sobered up with a bad hangover and the smell of the wine all over his body. And he had to go back ashamed to his family, covered in the stench of liquor, bruised and looked like he'd been hanging out with his buddies. He'd miss, he hadn't been home all night. His reputation was destroyed. He had just been saved. Everybody was watching to see if he would stand or fall. And now he had been forced to fall against his will. And his reputation was destroyed. And he must have thought, I can't possibly be saved. I can't possibly truly have Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I must not even be saved. I thought it was real. I thought God delivered me. But God will surely never have me now. And the devil is more cruel than all six of those men put together. And when those six men left laughing, the devil stayed. 
And maybe the devil sat there on his back all the next day. You dirty drunk. God never delivered you. You knew you wouldn't stand. You knew you couldn't make it. I told you that. Everybody told you that. It's all a lie. God won't take you, you dirty, nasty drunk. And maybe he listened to the devil. And maybe he fell further because of it. Lot was saved in the Bible. And there's not a nastier story in the whole Bible than what happened with Lot and his own daughters. Sometimes Christians fall. And that's reality in the Bible. So what is the purpose of discipleship? To establish you in the faith. Because bad things happen to people. And when bad things happen, you better have some Bible. You better be standing on the rock of ages. Or you might get your feet ripped right out from underneath you. And you might not handle it any better. That's why we need discipleship. This is the purpose of discipleship. The whole point of everything that's happening here. I asked you the question, what would happen to you if that happened to you? What would you do? How would your life change if that happened to you? I could tell you other stories. Like the pastor who was preaching and people were getting saved and his church was growing in the Lord and the ministry was going forward and they were evangelical. They were giving out the gospel. They were carrying the gospel to the lost. And there were three rebel boys in the church that despised the pastor and despised the word of God. And the pastor caught them doing something wicked. And he confronted them and he stopped them. But he did it privately. And he dealt with them on a private level. And he warned them and he told them to stop doing what they were doing and never do it again. Especially not, he said, in the church house. You get out, you don't ever do that here again. But he did not make a shame of them. Sometimes that's needed, by the way. But for whatever purpose or for whatever reason, I don't know all the details, he did not shame those three boys. Instead, he just told them to stop. Those three boys walked out the door of the church and they made a plan. They thought of a situation that was happening and they thought of a way that they could get the pastor back. And in just the right time, at just the right place, one of those boys said to the other boy, do you think anybody saw a pastor doing that and named a sin? And the, uh, something to this effect, I'm kind of butchering it up because I don't remember the details very well, but this is the gist of what they did. Do you think anybody saw a pastor doing that? Ears perked up around them. They were talking in low tones like, like they were trying to be private. And the other one says, oh, no, 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 I don't think so. I don't think we should tell anybody, do you? The other one says, no, no, we probably shouldn't tell anybody that pastor's been doing this and said this sin again. And the other one said, yeah, let's just keep it to ourselves. We wouldn't want to make a, we wouldn't want to get a bunch of people stirred up that our pastor is involved in this sin. And then they slipped off like they didn't notice that anybody had heard them. And they'd planned the whole thing to begin with. The church went in an uproar. The pastor got home from church that day to find his door locked. His wife standing inside weeping and shouting at him to go away and never come back. 
He went to a church member's house. They slammed the door in his face. He tried to talk to an elder. Nobody would even talk to him. He disappeared and he wasn't seen. What would happen to you? What would you do? Years went by. Finally, one of those boys came back to the church. He'd repented. God had broken him. If I remember the story right, the other two boys were dead. One boy survived God's judgment. That boy came back to the church and he told the church, I've sinned against God and God has judged me and broken me and sent me back to confess my sin and I must confess my sin. The church said, what have you done? And he told the church, me and these two other boys who are now dead, constructed that entire story and we planned that whole thing to destroy the pastor and not one word of what we said was true. Now the church was in an uproar again but a different kind. They were mourning. They were broken. They had destroyed their pastor on a false accusation. They started looking for him everywhere and they couldn't find him. They looked and looked. They put out um, notices in the newspaper. They hired private investigators. They scoured all over. I heard this story also from a preacher from South Africa. Same source. And this, uh, as the last story that I told you, this pastor was not to be found. Finally, one day, one of the men from the church was walking down a street in a big city far from home. He'd gone there on business. And as he turned a corner, he walked almost straight into another man that was walking out of an alley, and they almost collided. And when they did, they both looked up at each other to stop and not hit each other, and the elder of the church was looking straight in the eyes of his pastor. And the pastor was looking in the eyes of his elder. The elder looked at a man who was wearing rags. Who was covered in dirt and grime. Who was destroyed. He had liquor all over his body. He had evidence of living a life of sin. His eyes were full of sin and sorrow and depression. And the pastor turned and ran down the alley. The elder took off after him and chased him down, finally cornered him and strove with him to come back. Wouldn't let him out of his sight. They finally got him to come back. But he was so broken, he couldn't look anybody in the eye. He couldn't lift up his head. He couldn't shake a hand with anybody. He couldn't get over what he had done. The wife, weeping, told him how sorry she was. They got him sobered up and cleaned up and they tried to take care of him for about a week and a half and then one day his bed was empty and they never saw him again. What would you do? God wants us to be established. The fact of the matter is that Christians can fall. That's the fact of the matter. Christians can mess up. Christians can blow it. Christians can wreck on the rocks of this life. True, born-again, blood-bought Christians can wreck. That's a fact. What are you going to do? God wants you to be established in His Word so that when bad things happen, you're not wrecked. 
That's the purpose of discipleship. That is the end that God sees for you. That's the end that God purposes discipleship for. And God's means must be linked with God's, um, with God's end <coughs> in order to produce God's results. He says here that ye may be, to the end he may, may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Go to Ephesians 4 and verse 14. He says here, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. This world wants to destroy you. The devil wants to destroy you. Your enemy is walking about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But God has given means for your establishment. God has given means to establish you in the faith. Look here in Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the edifying, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then the verse that we just looked at, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness whereby they lay, lie in wait to deceive. What should that have, Pastor, have? have done what should he have done when his church turned against him when his wife shut him out of the house what should he have done should he have run away and become a, a bum and a beggar should he have fallen into sin should he have drink drank liquor and alcohol and become a drunk should he no he should not have he absolutely should not have. And, and those of you that have it all figured out, beware when you think ye stand lest ye fall. But what should he have done? Tell me something he could have done. Prayed. That's good. What else? Read his Bible. What else? Something practical. What? They wouldn't let him in church. What could he do? His reputation was ruined. That's a good thought. That's what he needed to stay in church. What could he do? Something practical. Tell me. How should he eat? Work. That's right. Work. Do you think he felt like working? No. But that's what he needed to do. Listen to me. It's easy to say what somebody should do. It's harder to do it when it happens. You're not going to do it if you're not established. But here's something very simple that would have saved that pastor's life. If he would have walked from there to the next town, however far he would have had to go until he could get somewhere where people would still honor him enough to give him the opportunity to even sit in their church, and he should have gone to church, and he should have got a job, 
And he should have worked hard and read his Bible like a crazy man, like he'd never read it before. And he should have prayed like a crazy man, like he'd never prayed before. That's what he should have done. I cannot say that I would be that spiritual in that situation. There are many men who have fallen over much less than that. And many better men than me who have fallen. So I cannot say that I would have done that, but he should have done it. Here the Bible says here in Ephesians that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Did you hear what that just said? God wants you to grow up. God wants you to grow up. Did you know that there was a man one day who had a ministry? Let me tell you another story. He had a ministry. And for years he served and labored amongst his own nation. It was a God-fearing nation. It was a nation that had honored God and honored his word for many years and had striven to maintain the word of God. And for many years he labored amongst his own people and in his own nation, but without honor. He had very few people that followed him. Many of the common people followed him, but the established religious system hated his guts and did not want anything to do with him. They were constantly seeking to destroy him, and finally they found a man from his own church who would agree with them to help them to capture him and take him to a place where his supporters would not be able to rally around him. And they did it in the middle of the night. They came to where he was at and they stole him away from his people and they took him to another place where they could falsely accuse him and they laid many grievous things at his charge. They charged him with many sins and many things, but their witnesses could not agree together. Finally, they said he blasphemes and they delivered him to Pilate. And they said, we found this man worthy of death. And they sent him to Pilate. But Pilate said, I found no fault in him. And they took him from Pilate. And Pilate sent him over to Herod. And Herod said, I found no fault in him. But when they brought him back and Pilate whipped him and beat him and set him before the people, the people that he had served his whole ministry, that he had come into this world to serve, that he had spent 30 years preparing to minister to, and three and a half years ministering to and giving his life and his strength and his honor and his wisdom to, those very people said, crucify him, crucify him. And they took him up to an old rugged cross on a hill called Calvary and they nailed his hands into that wooden cross and they nailed his feet into that wooden cross and they stripped his clothes off of his body. He who had been pure his whole life, he who had never done or even thought anything impure was now made a spectacle of impurity before the whole nation and they made him naked and they beat him and on that cross he said father forgive them for they know not what they do who knows who that one is that's Jesus Christ. And it says here, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. I told you about a drunk man. What should he have done? 
after they jammed that liquor down his throat, what should he have done? What should he have done? Tell me. Prayed. What else? Read his Bible like crazy. What else? Go to church. That's right. And when he shows up and nobody will let him in because he's a drunk and they say, you smell like liquor. He could try and reason them with them, but if they wouldn't have him, even if he's all alone, he should get in the Bible and pray and seek God's face and walk with God if he has to all by himself. That's what he should do. It's one thing to say what you should do, and it's another thing to do it. Jesus said, watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. You can say what you should do all you want, but until you are in the fire, you don't know what you will do. That's why God gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. (coughs) That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head even christ go to first corinthians 13 God wants you to grow up. He's the God who has ordained the end of growing up, of being established, has ordained the means through the word of God, through teachers, through discipleship. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. The glass is absolutely, indisputably the word of God. It's um, You can look at Philippians um, 3.20, talk, um, deals with some of that. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, James 1.23, also the looking glasses in the Old Testament of the women that were um, representative of the... They got the way they were used and everything. You can you study all that out. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. We have room to grow is what he's saying. We are still a work in progress. As we said the other day, that doesn't mean I can go and live in sin because I am a work in progress, but that I should get out of sin and get in the book because I'm a work in progress. He that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as our Lord is pure. Being a work in progress means purifying yourself. It doesn't mean living in sin and using your less than Christ-like reality as an excuse to continue therein. So he says here in verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And this is what Paul is calling the Corinthian church to put away some childish things. First um, Corinthians three, we won't go there, go to 14. But in three, he says, I fed you with milk. And when the time has come that you ought to be teachers, yet are ye still being taught? And he says the basic things I fed you with milk and not with meat for you're not able to bear it. You must grow up in Christ. It's not optional. 
It is sink or swim. You must grow up in Christ or you will fall and you will fail of the grace of God and turn aside after things that do not profit. First Corinthians 14 and verse 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. God's calling you to grow up. Young men, God is calling you to be men. Young ladies, God is calling you to be ladies. Be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. The martyrs that went to their death without flinching did not do that because... Um, because they had gone up and prayed a repeat after me prayer. They went to Sunday school, played video games and baseball the rest of the week, and enjoyed watching TV and movies. They went to the flame unflinching because they were grown up in him, because they were applying themselves to the word of God and to what they were being taught. You can have somebody yell truth at you and never get it. You've got to apply yourself. You've got to learn. You have got to choose to seek for wisdom. Search for her as for hid treasure. The purpose here is that you might grow up in him. Or he says here that ye might to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. Go to 1 John 3, verse 1. We alluded to this passage earlier. 1 John 3, verse 1 through 10. And this is going to deal with unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. As we, as we wrap up the rest of this verse, we'll look at a few other places in the Bible and be done. 1 John 3 and verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. And again here is this is to the end that he, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father. And here is our Father, and here is the establishment. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now, if you are not a son of God now, you are not a son of God. And if you die and you are not already now a son of God before you die, you will not become one when you get there. And if you are now a son of God, you will never not be a son of God. Sonship is unchangeable. Even adoption, by the laws of adoption in the Roman in Roman rule, in the days that the word of God was um, brought into being by God, the New Testament, God by inspiration of the Holy Spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul to talk twice about the adoption of sons. Galatians chapter 3 speaks of it and Romans chapter 8 speaks of the adoption of sons. And by Roman law, if a man was adopted, he became as much a son as a born begotten son with the equal rights as a child that was born naturally by that father. He could not be excluded from the inheritance. He could not be removed from adoption. No matter what that son did, he would still be considered that man's son, even though it was adoption. So even their adoption rules were for good. There was no changing them. And God here adopts us as sons. By the way, there's not much more cruel than adopting somebody and then dumping them when they don't measure up. And I've heard of it, and it makes me sick, and it makes God sick. These parents say, oh, we need a child. Let's adopt a child. Here comes the child. That's not exactly what we wanted. He's not behaving the way we want him. Let's send him back to the pound. 
Maybe we'll try another one. It's sick. It's disgusting. And if your idea of God is that he adopts children and then dumps them when they misbehave, you've got the wrong God. He's not the God of the Bible. Here he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He's saying you are not quite what you should be yet. There is room for growth. You're not what Christ is. He says it doth not yet appear what we shall be. He says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we will be like him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The apostle Paul or the apostle John here is saying that you are not there yet. You have not come to the perfection of Christ yet. You are not sinlessly perfect yet. You are not glorified with Christ yet. You are in position, but you're not in practicality. So look what he says in verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. This is the crook, the crux of it. This is where the rubber meets the road. The true Christian purifies himself even as he is pure. And if that Christian gets knocked out and his feet wiped out from underneath him, eventually he will end up with God taking his life. As he said to the Corinthian church, some of you sleep because you're taking the cup unworthily. God will take a Christian's life before he allows him to continue to live in sin. As far as, if I can remember right, that man that got drunk and he then went off and continued to drink after that and died within a week or two of that happening. God took him out. What a grief and what a sorrow for his life to end that way. What a grief and what a sorrow it will be if your life ends that way. Don't throw your life away. But guess what? You don't, in the moment of temptation, it's too late to prepare for temptation. Do you hear me? When the earthquake starts shaking, it's too late to reinforce the building. What you are when the trial starts is what you will probably be when the trial ends. If you are established, you will stand. If you are not established, you will fall. The Bible says there's no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to man. And he says the Lord will provide a way of escape. He will make sure that you are able to bear it. He will provide a way of escape. Very often the way of escape comes before the temptation ever comes. Let me ask you another question. If... A lion came after you. Do you want a way of escape? Would you call it a way of escape for the lion to jump on you and claw you nearly to death and bite you nearly in half and then somebody come in and rescue you or to see the lion and jump and get into a building and shut the door before the lion gets to you? Which one would you call a way of escape? Getting into the building. One way is a way of escape. One way is survival. Most of the time as Christians, we end up surviving temptation, not escaping temptation. God wants you to have a way of escape. But for you to have that way of escape, you need to grow up in Christ. 
That's the purpose of discipleship. We've got to keep moving. We're going to wrap this thing up right away real quick. Um, chapter 2 of First John says, And now, little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. In Jude verse 14, he says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. And he goes on from there. The Lord is coming. And here our text says, Unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In Revelation twenty-two twenty, Jesus Christ, his last words to man on earth, in the word of God, surely I come quickly. Jesus is coming soon. Do you want to be found grown up in the faith? Or do you want to be found a little baby or a child tossed with every wind and doctrine? What do you want to be found as? Remember, this whole thing starts with the words that he may. God is the only one that can do it. It says, to the end, he may establish your hearts. God is the only one that can do it. Go to Philippians. If, if it gets done, it's because God does it. But God uses human agency to accomplish his will. And God's means to accomplish God's end, I hope you see here, are through discipleship. And that's the whole bent of this discussion as we've looked at these, at these four verses that deals very specifically with discipleship and Paul's deep desire to perfect that which lacketh in their faith, God uses human agency to get his will done. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is God's way. He will perform it. If God doesn't perform it, it won't get done. But God will perform it through people. Some of you here today, God is performing his will. He is teaching you. He is establishing you. He is giving you a way of escape right now through this lesson. Will you use it? Or will you let it go by unheeded and stay in your childishness and stay in your little foolishness and your ignorance? Will you stay as a babe in Christ or will you step up to what God is giving you, ingest it, receive it, make it your own, study the Bible and follow Jesus Christ yourself? What will you do? What will you do? I hope you will receive it. So Philippians 2.12 says here, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He did not say work to gain salvation. He said work out your salvation. In order to work out your salvation, you must already possess salvation. If you are saved, he's telling you, work out your salvation with fear fear and trembling work out your own salvation with fear and trembling but look at the next verse Philippians 2 13 for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure 
So you work it out, but recognize that God is the one that gives you both the desire and the power to do his will. And all glory goes to God, but you must respond to that. Listen to me today. God worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. But when God worketh in you to will to do something, when God puts something in your heart to obey God, your flesh rises up, which is contrary to God and tries to prevent you from doing that which God has worked in you both to will and do. And you will have to make a choice. It's going to be up to you to make the choice. Am I going to receive the grace and the power, the desire from God to do what is right and do it even though it doesn't feel like it? Or am I going to fail of the grace of God? I'm thinking of that man that had all that liquor poured down his throat. He had a choice to make and he made the wrong choice. I don't know that I would do any better than that. What an awful situation. What a horrible situation. That pastor that got run out of town on a rail. His reputation ruined. Not a dollar to his name. No way to make a living. No way to do it. I don't know that I would do any, any better than he did. But he had a choice. And God worketh in you. Both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You are going to have to make a choice. Am I going to follow God or am I going to follow my stinking, rotten, wicked flesh that is contrary to God and that fights against everything God does? Jude verse 24. As you're turning there, he says in verse 15 of Philippians, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. This nation is crooked and perverse. The world is crooked and perverse and it's getting worse and it's going to get worse. You are going to have to make a choice. When everything goes bad, you're going to have to make a choice. And if you make the right choice, it'll be because you're established. If you're established, it's because you've been obedient to the lessons God is teaching you and you've listened carefully and applied the word of God that was preached to you and you've studied the Bible for yourself and applied it to your life. Jude 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. I want to make you a promise based on the authority of the Word of God. No matter what happens in your life, I want eyes up here, please. Eyes up here, right now. No matter what happens in your life, no matter how bad it gets or looks like it's getting, if you will reach out to God in your distress and cry unto the Lord in your emergencies, if you will seek the Lord with all your heart and when bad things happen, instead of getting angry at God and depressed or doubting or fearful, if you will reach up to God and say, God, I don't understand and I don't know what to do, but I trust you and I'm not going to leave you. He'll take your hand and he will carry you through. 
because he is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne. Father, in Jesus' holy name, I pray that you would help us to use your means to accomplish your end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.